I don't think that this was Paul Rudd's best performance. Hey, you want to start that over and not uh, scratch your shirt? I didn't realize it was that loud. It was loud enough. (laughs) Paul Rudd as Scott Lang slash (sighs) Ant-Man. All right, let's go. We Can Do This All Day, episode 26, Avengers Endgame Review, part two. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And And We we Can can Do do This this All Day, a podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And on our calendar, it has only been one week since we recorded part one of our Avengers Endgame review. We hope that you've only had to wait about that long, maybe just a tiny bit longer between the two shows. We wanted to, after all these gaps, Emily and I thought we would try to make up for some lost time by giving you two back-to-back episodes. That way you could listen to it as if it's one four-hour episode if you wanted to. If you wait for the second part to come out. <laughs> if you, you wait for the second part to come out, then you could listen to it, theoretically, as one giant, massive episode. Delayed gratification, and it's going to be a biggie. So if you can do it, if you have the willpower to make it happen, if you are worthy, you can do it. So, yes, we are back very quickly after our last episode. I'm Mark Villa. Emily Griswold joining me as always over in Studio E across town. I think this is the first time we've ever done a back-to-back episode before. Of course, it means the one after this will take like two months to get out. Hopefully not. We had a great time doing our, our review of Avengers Endgame, the first half of the movie. And so uh, without further ado, we're just going to kind of dive right into the rest of the movie. But in case your memory is as bad as mine. I was going to make some like wind chime noises. The story so far. That was pretty good. So, the Avengers, when we last left them, were in the middle of their time heist operation to go back in time via the quantum tunnel to various points in history where they can retrieve the six Infinity Stones before Thanos got them, bring them to the future, and somehow use them to bring back the 50% of all living creatures that Thanos snapped away five years earlier. At the point at which we left off, Bruce Banner had gotten the Time Stone from the Ancient One in 2012 New York, Steve Rogers had gotten the Mind Stone after S.H.I.E.L.D. slash Hydra had briefly gotten hold of it in 2012 New York, Rocket and Thor had gotten the Reality Stone from Asgard in 2013, and Colonel James, Rhodey Rhodes, and Nebula had gotten the Power Stone from Morag in 2014. Natasha Romanoff and Clint Barton were on their way to get the Soul Stone from Vormir in 2014. Unfortunately, Tony Stark and Scott Lang lost the Space Stone, in the form of the Tesseract, in 2012 New York, when Loki stole away with it, and Nebula, who malfunctioned after her consciousness was inadvertently shared with her 2014 self, was taken by Thanos before she could return with Rhodey to 2023. And so we continue. Steve returns to the rendezvous point in 2012 New York with the Scepter. There, Tony and Scott tell him that the Tesseract disappeared along with 2012 Loki. So I guess if we were really going for continuity, we'd talk about the Loki show right now. Which I totally wouldn't mind. I really like that show. Purely for the plot. Both of the plots. It's just, you know, two really good plots. Emily really likes plot. Yeah. Especially the the plots in Loki. What are you going to do if we review Falcon and the Winter Soldier? One plot? She's going to talk about those plots, too. 
those plots too. <laughs> not only do they not have the Tesseract, but they each only have one vial of pim particles, enough to return to 2023, but not enough to go anywhere else, like a point further in the past where the Tesseract is, and return home. Tony then recalls a place and time where they might be able to get both the Tesseract and more pim particles. Over the protests of a dubious and panic-stricken Scott, Steve reaffirms his trust in Tony and agrees to go with him to retrieve the particles and the Tesseract while Scott returns home with the Scepter. You know, for some reason, I don't really mind Scott's temper tantrum here. He was still kind of new with the whole superhero thing when Thanos happens, and he essentially jumped forward in time five years at that point. So he has far less experience than anyone else on the team in dealing with, you know, Avengers level threats. If it looked like our plan had failed, I'd probably be freaking out too. Scott's the closest thing to a normal person as we're going to get in this group, so he's not used to keeping his cool in the middle of a universe altering crisis. Uh, where's Banner? Wasn't he with them? Who cares, I guess? I mean, he's got the time stone. You know, that is kind of odd. He went ahead home, I guess, after getting the time stone, but Cap went to meet Tony and Scott after getting the scepter. Uh, yeah, I'd, I've always kind of wondered that myself. It might just be a, just a plot device of some sort. I don't think I but, noticed until watching it this time that I was like, where did he go? He was in New York. He's too obvious. He's too easy, easy to spot and wanted to get out of the way as soon as possible. My guess, for what that's worth. So Tony and Cap arrive at a U.S. Army base at Camp Lehigh in New Jersey, the birthplace of Captain America, so to speak, in 1970. With Cap disguised as a period soldier and Tony dressed in a shield jacket and tie, they notice a couple of suits headed into a bunker in the middle of the bustling base, the same bunker where Cap and Natasha found the Arnim Zola computer in Captain America the Winter Soldier. They manage to get into the bunker before splitting up. Steve is so bad at undercover stuff. Like, you'd never know all that's like totally bamp stuff that he's done just since getting off the ice in 2012 because he's the most awkward person ever when he's around anyone that might possibly know that he's Captain America. Also, Hank Pym's hair. I feel like the 70s weren't kind to anyone. Two points. First of all, yeah, <laughs> the hair. It's funny because this would be about the time that we're a little bit too early that uh, Michael Douglas would have been filming the TV series Streets of San Francisco, and I don't think his hair was quite that long on that show. It was big, but I don't think it was quite that long. So it was kind of funny seeing Hank sporting the uh, the long locks. Also, and I had I didn't put this in the notes, but it just occurred to me, uh, the very, very beginning of this scene in 1970, we get uh, Stan Lee's final cameo. Oh, yeah, I was going to write something about that. Yeah, Stan, Stan Lee's final cameo is the guy driving by on the car saying, Make love, not war. That'll be his last appearance in a Marvel movie as he passed away the following... No, he'd already passed away. He passed away in November of 2018, So because yeah, he had shot a whole bunch of them before he died, and that was the last one. So, R.I.P. Stan. Tony makes his way into the lab, locates the Tesseract, and stuffs it into a briefcase. He's about to make his escape when he bumps into Howard Stark, his father. Tony is able to pass himself off as a Dr. Howard Potts, visiting from MIT, and says he was trying to leave the building, but got lost. Howard accompanies him back up to the surface. On the way up, Howard informs Tony that his wife is expecting. He indicates his nervousness about fatherhood to Tony, and asks him how he dealt with becoming a dad. Tony tells him he pieced it together as he went along, and assures him everything will work out fine. He even gives Howard a piece of advice that he would give Tony himself many years later. No amount of money ever bought a second of time. Tony, clearly grateful to have had these unique moments with his dad, finds a way, albeit very awkwardly, to thank Howard for all he's done, 
for this country <laughs> and give him a hug. And so there you have it. Through the power of time travel, Tony Stark manages to make peace with his father before he himself is even born. There are lots of references to Back to the Future in this movie, of course, and I think this is actually one of them. The idea that being able to interact with your parents when they were younger, before you were even born, gives you some sort of special insight into them. Howard's comment about how a girl would be less likely to turn out like him because the greater good has rarely outweighed his own self-interest, as he says. I take it, and I think Tony took it as Howard indicating that, at the very least, he may have considered <laughs> that he's kind of a jerk and that he hopes his kid, especially if it is a boy, doesn't turn out like him. The idea that Howard is aware that he's a jerk and the admission that there's the potential for him to be kind of a crappy father at least gives Tony the cold comfort of knowing that his dad at least recognized on some level his own flaws. It might be the closest Tony ever gets to his dad apologizing to him for being a lousy parent. And then outside the base, Howard makes it clear that despite his anxiety about becoming a dad, there's nothing he wouldn't do for his kid. And I think he means it. And I also think Tony now recognizes that despite some significant hiccups, his dad did his best and succeeded more often than not. Tony himself says, I remember the good stuff. Also noteworthy in this scene, James Darcy is the first actor to ever appear in both an MCU TV series and a feature film, as he portrayed Edwin Jarvis in the old Agent Carter TV series on NBC before making his return here in Endgame. Also, it's good to see John Slattery back as Howard Stark. I think he plays that role really well. Wasn't um, Phil Coulson? Isn't he also one, though? No, no. Because he was an agent. It's a good field. point. That's right. Because he was in the movies first. Yeah. I just thought of that. Well, okay, okay. Well, let me then let me then let me amend my statement. James Darcy is the first first TV M MCU TV show actor to, to make the to leap the to the big big screen. Okay. okay, so almost had it there. So yes, I stand corrected. Thank you. That's a very good point. Related to what you said, though, it's so hard to remember that your parents are people too, much less everyone else around you. You're so much a part and a product of your parents that the idea that they could be their own person is nearly impossible to imagine. I'd totally take the risk and time travel back to the 70s and 80s to meet my parents before me. You would? Yeah. I, I probably, I don't think I'd I... I'd tell my dad not to have the haircut that he had. Because <laughs> he also had one of those 70s haircuts. Well, I think everybody had everybody had those 70s haircuts. My dad had a bad 70s haircut, I think. I was born in 1973. I'm, you know, essentially a product of the 80s, but I still remember the 70s well. So, of course, I have a little bit more of a fond remembrance of the hairstyles. I don't think they were dreadful. I mean, they do look a little silly now. Elsewhere on the base, Steve causes a distraction to get a very young Hank Pym out of his lab long enough for him to take four vials of pim particles. Some of the base personnel are on to him, so he makes a hasty retreat and has to momentarily duck into an office to avoid the MPs. He discovers a photo of his younger, pre-serum self on a desk and soon realizes that he has wandered into the office of S.H.I.E.L.D. director Peggy Carter. He spies her through a window, talking to someone else in an inner office, and stares at her for several seconds longingly before proceeding to leave the base. First off, notice that Steve took four vials when he and Tony only need two to get back home. Did he just think it would be a good idea to have extras? Or did Steve possibly want them for something else in the future? Hmm. Second, I never noticed this until this last rewatch. What a dick Hank is to Steve on the phone. That would be the number you've called. Well, bring it up. I'm confused. I thought that was your job. Now it all 
really starts to make sense how he pissed off so many people over the course of his life because he was kind of a jerk. So in our first episode covering this movie, so last week, the scene when Steve and all of them go to Tony's house to talk to him about the time travel stuff, there's that bit where Steve is like, I get it, but this is a second chance. And Tony is like, I've got my second chance right here talking about Morgan. It makes me wonder, actually, if there's been a seed of an idea in his head for a while and those vials might be a way to get it. His own second chance, that is. Oh, I mean, that's what I was inferring. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm totally figuring he did that for a reason. Thinking there would be a chance on the other end of this. To use it himself. You could still make the argument that they were just spares. I mean, you know, especially after <laughs> after Scott's accident in the first. We got enough for two and two test runs. <laughs> One test run. Aboard Sanctuary 2, 2014 Nebula beats up 2023 Nebula in her cell as 2014 Gamora looks on. 2023 Nebula tells Gamora that she can stop this, that she knows she wants to. She tells Gamora that she knows she's seen the future, that Thanos gets the Soul Stone. She asks Gamora if she wants to know how he got it, what he did to her. 2014 Nebula takes her future counterpart's time-space GPS device, her vial of pim particles, and the gold piece of plating on her head that will allow 2014 Nebula to pass as 2023 Nebula. I know we're having a serious moment here, and it's only gonna get worse, but watching the two Nebulas is like watching Lindsay Lohan and the Parent Trap, a seminal movie of my childhood. The Benatar arrives at Vormir in 2014. Natasha and Clint ascend the mountain and encounter the Red Skull, who gives them the same spiel that he gave Thanos and Gamora in Infinity War, that the stone demands its seeker to give up that which it loves the most, a soul for a soul. They spend several minutes pondering the situation, but it becomes evident rather quickly that in order to get the stone, one of them must die, and neither of them wants it to be the other. So they fight. Clint knocks Natasha down, but she stuns him with a widow stinger. She runs toward the cliff, but Clint fires an explosive tip arrow in front of her, knocking her to the ground before she can reach it. He runs for the cliff and leaps off. Just as Natasha also leaps off, grabs a hold of him and fires a grappling hook into the face of the cliff, attaching the other end to Clint. The line stops Clint's fall as he reaches out and catches Natasha by the hand. As she hangs there, she pleads with him to let her go. He won't. So Natasha kicks hard off the side of the cliff, forcing Clint to let her go, and she plummets to her death. The twin pillars on the mountain ignite, and moments later, Clint finds himself lying in a pool of water on Vormir with the soul stone in his hand. I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. This isn't one of the saddest moments in all of the MCU so far. It's totally fine. I can't tell you how much fan fiction I've read that finds ways to bring Natasha back via magic or the other stones just to, like, soothe my soul after that. Yeah, this scene has, has been talked about so much already in the last few years. I'm not really sure what else to say. Someone had to die so they could get the stone. It obviously sucks big time if Natasha dies. But if Clint dies, either the entire Barton clan dies or Lara and the kids come back, but they don't have a husband and a father and Hawkeye would be dead. Regardless, I think Natasha's coming back somehow, sometime. I don't know when, but I strongly suspect she will be back. The Avengers return to the compound in 2023, moments after their initial departure, as yet unaware that it's 2014 Nebula who has returned and not 2023 Nebula. Their excitement over the plan having worked is quickly crushed by the realization that Natasha did not make it. The surviving OG Avengers convene to remember her, but the gathering quickly turns into an argument as Thor implores them to use the stones to bring her back. Clint insists that it cannot be undone, and momentarily gets into it with Thor when Thor insinuates that Clint doesn't know what he's talking about. Bruce puts an end to the discussion, however, conceding that Natasha's not coming back, 
and that they now have a responsibility to make her sacrifice worth it. First of all, Jeremy Renner is just so good in this movie. I'm so glad we get to see such a strong performance from him here. And the bit with him telling off Thor is pretty powerful. It's probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. The thing is, as much as I think Thor deserved to be dressed down like that. I also don't blame him for feeling the way that he does because he's in he's in as much pain as Clint is right now. And, you know, he's desperate to do whatever it takes to make things right. Except for the Avengers, he's lost everybody he cares about too. Clint feels guilty for letting Natasha die and for all the other things he's done in the last few years. Thor feels guilty for not killing Thanos five years earlier. The part about do we know if she had a family absolutely kills me. Like, yes, we know that she did and Clint does. But Steve response about you know where he says yeah it was us it kind of feels more like he's talking for himself Natasha was his family he didn't have anyone else that really got it they really understood what it felt like to be out of place the way that they are on principle I just dislike it when someone dies and says oh did they have family or you know when someone dies under really bad circumstances or any circumstances and you know he leaves behind a wife and two children it's like okay well yeah it's it's horrible that he's left behind a wife and two children or whatever but it's like it doesn't mean that that person's life is any less valued than someone who wasn't married or didn't have kids kids or you know doesn't have any blood relatives or family in the traditional sense uh, around to mourn them or to not have them around anymore you know people have friends and so on and so forth i just well i guess tony was thinking about like thing. who do we have to tell like who has to know okay i guess that could be it because you want to make sure that everybody knows and it's not like six months later and they're calling a defunct phone number or something right well that's true kind of very telling that for all these years they don't know that they don't know for well, one Clint reason knows, or another. But... Natasha just must have kept a tight lip about it. She's in the business of keeping secrets and so forth, so I guess I get it. Tony, Bruce, and Rocket construct a gauntlet out of the same nanotechnology used in the current Iron Man armor and attach the Infinity Stones to it. The question then becomes, who will use it to bring everybody back? Thor pleads for it to be him, desperate to right all of his perceived mistakes, but Tony insists that he's in no condition to do it, especially since the power running through it is extraordinary. It did, after all, almost kill Thanos. Bruce steps up and insists that it has to be him. Most of the radiation coming off the stones is gamma, and thus he is well suited to that task. Meanwhile, 2014 Nebula interfaces with the quantum tunnel slash time machine and contacts Thanos in the past. She activates the tunnel and brings Sanctuary 2, which Thanos was apparently able to miniaturize and transport by replicating the Pym particles and the time-space GPS device taken from 2023 Nebula, into 2023. We see it emerge from the tunnel and burst through the ceiling as it re-enlarges. I'd like to understand the stones just a tiny bit more. All this talk about just bring everybody back to now, to today. Don't change anything else. Is it a spell? Is it an agreement you make with the stones? Is it your intention when you snap your fingers? Like, what? What? What is it? What's going on? Oh, it's like Thor said, space magic. I just want to know because it's like I have such a rapid fire brain and it's bouncing all over the place that I would be worried that if I used the stones, they'd be like, all right, this. Think this. I'd think that and then I'd be like, oh, what about dinner? (laughs) Or like... What am I going to do tomorrow? When should I set my alarm for? Like, I would have those other thoughts running in the back of my mind. (laughs) So the idea that it's like up to my intentions, it's like, well, my intentions are food (laughs) in 30 minutes. You bring everybody back plus... It's like you know, raining. Vegan, it starts raining vegan tacos. It's like raining pizza. It ra- rain, it's raining pizza and a, a new My Chemical Romance album mysteriously comes out. 
Bruce puts on the gauntlet and immediately begins to feel the awesome power of the stones ripping through his arm. We can see the gauntlet itself start to melt, and Bruce's arms start to smolder as he screams in unbearable pain. But he manages to hold on long enough to snap his fingers. He falls unconscious as the gauntlet falls from his now badly disfigured arm. While the others tend to Bruce, Scott begins walking toward a window, noticing a large number of birds now flocking around a tree in the courtyard. Clint's cell phone begins to ring. It's an incoming call from Laura's phone. Clint answers it. Bruce comes too long enough to look up at the skylight and see the massive form of Sanctuary 2 hovering overhead. It fires a barrage of missiles at the compound, leveling it completely, as we see the floor collapse underneath the Avengers, swallowing them up. So Clint paid that phone bill for five years, huh? And nobody at T-Mobile or whatever thought to check up on that. And did she have that phone on her when she got dusted? Did it dust with her and then come back? How else did she get a hold of it? Has it been sitting unmolested on that picnic table on the farm for the last five years waiting for her to come back? Maybe like, she just... kept it on the charger, like in the house. She's been back for all of like 10 seconds and she, <laughs> she's got easy access to her phone and the number still works and everything. That is probably one of the sillier plot holes in the movie. It's not a perfect movie and I suppose I really don't care. It's still kind of a cool... No, I don't care <gasps> oh either. God! It's just kind funny. Of... <laughs> but yeah, it is kind of weird. I think everybody, everyone comments on that. Bruce, Rhodey, and Rocket are trapped deep underground in the wreckage of the compound, the structure collapsing around them while water from the pipes and the nearby body of water are rushing in. The war machine armor has been severely damaged, so Rhodey has to climb out of it and crawl over to Rocket to free him from being pinned underneath debris. All the while, Bruce is struggling to keep everything from falling on them. Elsewhere, Scott, who shrunk down, probably saving his life, hears their distress call and starts looking for them. Clint finds himself and the gauntlet in an access tunnel. Moments later, he finds himself besieged by Thanos' outriders, so he grabs the gauntlet and runs. Thanos beams down to the surface and is greeted by 2014 Nebula. He orders her to find the stones while he waits. Aboard Sanctuary 2, 2014 Gamora confronts the captive 2023 Nebula and asks her how they end up in the future. Nebula tells her that after her own numerous attempts to kill her, they become friends, sisters. Gamora sets her free, and they both leave to try and stop Thanos. I feel like this whole second part of Endgame is just me talking about Clinton Barton, but his reaction to regaining consciousness while trapped under a bunch of rubble is so perfect. He's slightly horrified and scared, but mostly I'd say 75% of him is annoyed. Like, dude can't catch a break. Tony, Cap, and Thor end up not buried deep underground, but find themselves relatively close to the surface. They emerge from the wreckage and can see Thanos sitting there waiting. And in contrast, Cap is 75% horrified and scared and only slightly annoyed. <laughs> I also like Tony's quip about, you lose this again, I'm keeping it, about the shield. There are a lot of shield jokes in this movie, it seems like. A lot of Cap shield quips i could take it because you know we missed that shield so darn much i know it was gone for so long it was gone for you know it was gone for an entire avengers movie they assume he doesn't have the stones so they decide to make sure that it stays that way thor having recouped his mojo calls down the lightning and summons his armor 2013 mjolnir and stormbreaker and declares let's kill him properly this time the big three approach thanos who now realizes what he must do because leaving half the universe alive also means allowing people who remember the way things were to live and to rebel, he must destroy all life in the universe and start over, with living things that know not what they lost. A grateful universe. Thor, Cap, and Tony then attack Thanos. First of all, I do like the sort of 
Western good, the bad, and the ugly style of, of filmmaking as you see Thor, Cap, and Tony's feet as they're walking towards Thanos. It's just kind of a cool effect. Second of all, okay, so we've kind of figured out that Thanos has a god complex if it weren't evident already. That's the bottom line, isn't it? The only way he can envision having a quote-unquote grateful universe is by destroying it and replacing it with sycophants. He truly is, to borrow a phrase from my sister, knuck and futz. I'm not gonna rant in this episode because you'll get it. You get it. You know. But like, babe, sweet, sweet summer child, Thanos, buddy, <laughs> what? You wipe out the universe, yeah? Babe, okay. Sweet. Oh and then my it God. starts to grow again. Start a new whatever. <laughs> sure. How exactly would that be a grateful universe if no one knows what happened before? And what are you going to do when your u- new universe reaches this point again? Just keep wiping everything out and starting over? Utopia just, it can't happen and it won't happen. Utopia is not a thing, pal. Scott continues to make his way towards Bruce, Rhodey, and Rocket. Clint evades the Outriders, but is caught by 2014 Nebula. Before she can take the gauntlet with the stones, Gamora and 2023 Nebula arrive. Gamora tries to convince the younger Nebula to come with them and resist Thanos, but she says she can't because he will never let her. She is about to shoot Gamora when she is shot and killed by 2023 Nebula. Thor, Cap, and Tony get points for the relentlessness with which they assault Thanos, but nothing seems to be working. Tony turns his suit into a massive cannon and tries having Thor use the lightning to power it up, but is knocked unconscious in the process, while Mjolnir is errantly lost on the periphery of the battlefield. Cap makes a run at Thanos, but is similarly knocked aside. Thanos gets the upper hand against Thor and is about to use Stormbreaker to cut into him when we see Mjolnir slowly rise up off the ground. Just as Thanos is about to finish off Thor, he is struck from behind by Mjolnir, which then flies back into the waiting hand of cap. And so we revisit that scene in Age of Ultron where Steve appears to budge Mjolnir. The prevailing wisdom now is that he could, in fact, wield it all along, but willingly did not do so for fear of embarrassing Thor. After all, this is Steve Rogers we're talking about. He's too gracious a person to not do that. I know your favorite moment is coming up, but I'm surprised you don't have more to say about this. Well, I don't know. Um, just don't have much else to say. What else is there to say about it? It's a very cool moment that's been referenced in the comics before, and as we said, it was referenced in Age of Ultron. If Steve Steve Rogers isn't the definition of worthy, I don't know who else is. Besides, I've been essentially watching this movie for two weeks straight now, and I'm a little tired, so I have to ration my comments accordingly. If anybody else in the whole of the MCU would be worthy enough for Mjolnir, who do you think it would be? Anyone else in the MCU? Yeah. Anyone else in the MCU? Yeah, anyone else. Anyone else in the MCU? Anyone else that isn't Thor and Cap, obviously, because they've already done it. That's, oh, that's, I really... Legit well, I in terms of the people we have met. No, so anybody. Far, I can't. I know. I mean, I like can't. anybody in this cinematic universe. That <clears throat> I know. I, seen. I know. I know. I'm trying to think because I mean, I know well who else in the comics has held Mjolnir, but they have not been introduced in the MCU, at least not yet. I can't think of anybody. Can you? I, I'm guessing. I'm get. I'm betting you have someone in mind. I have one. Yeah, uh, Peter Parker. Oh, maybe. Well, I was going to say he's a little on the young side, but then again, that doesn't necessarily preclude being worthy. That's an interesting thought. Let it percolate. Think about it. I will. 
Cap goes at Thanos with everything he's got, throwing Mjolnir, throwing the shield, throwing Mjolnir and the shield, bringing down lightning. He actually gets in a few good licks, but Thanos once again overpowers him and begins pummeling him with his sword, ultimately splitting the shield in two and leaving Cap lying dazed on the ground. Thanos then summons the entirety of his forces from Sanctuary 2. Outriders, Chitari, Ebony Maw, Corvus Glaive, Proxima Midnight, Cull Obsidian, the big flying thingies from Avengers, absolutely everything he has. They stand ready to overrun the Earth. Cap simply does what he always does. He gets up, straps on what's left of his shield, and prepares to face the enemy, even if he is only one man against an entire army. As he prepares to make his desperate last stand, Steve hears a crackle over his radio. Cap, do you read me? Cap, it's Sam. Do you hear me? On your left. Steve turns to his left in astonishment and sees a portal like the ones used by the sorcerers of Kamertage, open up. From it emerge three figures, T'Challa, Okoye, and Shuri. Behind them, through the portal, Steve can see Wakanda in the background behind them. Sam Wilson then soars out of the portal, just as dozens more portals open up all around Steve. One such portal opens from Titan, and we see Dr. Stephen Strange, Mantis, Drax, Peter Quill, and Peter Parker. T'Challa, Okoye, and Shuri are not alone, as the entire Wakandan army and air force proceed to follow them out of the portal, along with M'Baku and the Jabari, Wanda Maximoff, Bucky Barnes, and Groot. A portal from New Asgard opens up, bringing forth Valkyrie, mounted on a Pegasus, Korg, Meek, and an army of Asgardian soldiers. Sorcerers, led by Wong, pour from a portal from Kamartage, and from Contraxia come legions of Ravagers. Also emerging from the portals are Hope Van Dyne in her wasp suit, and Pepper Potts, wearing the blue armor, rescue for all you comics readers, from which Morgan briefly modeled the helmet earlier in the movie. The remains of the Avengers compound explode as Scott, grown to his giant man size, erupts, carrying Bruce, Rocket, and Rhodey, now wearing his old Iron Patriot armor. Almost every single living hero and ally from the MCU has come to stop Thanos on Earth. Thanos looks at the force that suddenly opposes his army, and for the first time ever, looks a little pensive. Cap calls Mjolnir to him once again, and finally, after all these movies, issues the command we've all been waiting to hear. Avengers, assemble. The Avengers, all of them, and Thanos' army charge towards each other as the final battle for the fate of the entire universe begins. Every time I saw this movie in the theater, I freaking cried when this happened. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, for a Marvel fan, it is the single most beautiful sight you could possibly imagine, brought to the big screen in all its glory. I love it, love it, love it. I never noticed until watching it for this time, for the episode, but when they start coming through the portals, it briefly flashes to Thanos, and he's making this face that's like, uh... Huh. Yep. Well. <laughs> <laughs> For the first time in all these movies, Thanos looks a little worried. He's he, like, maybe he, I made a little whoopsie. He looks like maybe, maybe I this, should walk it back. Maybe, maybe this is not going to be as easy as I thought. And so the battle begins. We see various Avengers engaged in combat. I like Scott punching out one of the Chitari flying thingies. That's my favorite part. Or one of them, at least. Tony is knocked down by Cull Obsidian, who is about to skewer him until Peter Parker webs him and pulls him back just enough for Scott to step on him. And then Tony hugs Peter. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, this is nice. I especially like this interaction between Peter Parker and Tony because didn't Peter think that Tony was trying to hug him when Tony was dropping him off at his house at the airport, like for homecoming? So it was like right after Civil War. 
Yeah, like right after they get back from Berlin and, and it was war. super yeah. awkward. Like there's so yep. much growth. Like they're friends now. Well, it's a total callback to that scene. It's a total callback. You know, Tony wasn't trying to hug him, and now he is trying to hug him deliberately. So it's I just thought that was really full sweet. circle. There's symmetry. One of the many moments when the entire theater erupts in applause, of which there were quite a few in that last hour. Peter Quill is flying around, shooting up a bunch of Sakarans. He winds up in what appears to be the wreckage of a Quinjet and fights off a few more Sakarans. He gets hit by one and is about to be finished off when he is saved by 2014 Gamora. He approaches her, presumably believing her to be 2018 Gamora, somehow alive now, and touches her face. She responds, by kneeing him in the nuts twice. Technically, according to him, you know, what did he say? You, just, yeah. you, you missed you the first missed, time, and then you, you got the him both time. the second and then time. Then you got him both the second time. Yeah, seeing Quill get it in the family jewels is funny and all, but at the same time, we're laughing at the expense of a man whose girlfriend was murdered and who he now thinks is alive again when we know she isn't. It just seems a little awkward when you think about it, maybe even a little cruel. Clint is running for his life with the gauntlet. Cap tells him to get the stones as far away from Thanos as possible, but then Bruce interjects that they need to get the stones back to where they came from. The problem is, the quantum tunnel went up when the compound did. Scott shrinks down to normal size and tells them that it wasn't their only time machine. He pulls out a keyring, pushes a button on it, and we are serenaded with the X-Con van's La Cucaracha horn. I think that's in the public domain, so I don't think we're going to get I mean, we already for that sang one. lots of Taylor Swift. I think, honestly, it's fine. No one's actually, like, we'll deal. listening to the podcast for Taylor Swift's greatest hits snuck in there. Wouldn't that be funny if Taylor Swift listens to our show and she just like, oh, where's my lawyer? I gotta put down the copyright claim. Anyone see an ugly brown van out there? I don't know why I love that line so much. I like the Valkyrie's line. Yeah, but you're not going to like where it's parked. Yeah, Valkyrie spots it in the middle of a horde of outriders and Thanos' foot soldiers. Scott and Hope shrink down and head towards the van to get the portable quantum tunnel warmed up, while the rest of the Avengers work on getting the stones there. Meanwhile... Tony meets up with Strange and asks him if this is the one scenario in which they win. Strange responds, If I tell you what happens... It won't happen. Clint, still carrying the gauntlet, is about to run into a wall of bad guys when T'Challa plows them away and implores Clint to let him take the gauntlet. He does, and T'Challa begins making his way towards the van, dispatching soldiers of Thanos as he goes, until Thanos knocks the gauntlet out of his hands with his sword. Thanos moves to retrieve it, but he is cut off by one very pissed off Wanda Maximoff. This might be my favorite little Wanda moment, since she's not in this movie a whole lot. Because it kind of shows the beginnings of where we're about to head with her character. And of course, they can't like spoil the future or anything. But stuff's about to get dark. <laughs> and we can trace most of that back to Thanos. You know, I'll leave all of Tony's handiwork for a different time. I mean, we've kind of always known, at least we should have known all along, she is arguably the most powerful being in the MCU. And here she is, very, very angry for a very, very good reason. She did not come to play and, and she doesn't even know that this is the old Thanos. Like, none of them have really been informed that this is 2014 Thanos. Yeah. So naturally, you know, he says, I don't even know you. You will. And it's just, it's a it's a wonderful moment because you know she's going to... Because that she would gets set me off. Like, if I were Wanda and he had said, I don't even know you, not knowing that this is old Thanos, I'd be like, oh, buddy, you're in for it now. I also love I just the the idea of them playing almost it's sort of the, the anti hot potato. It's like football, basically playing football with the gauntlet. It's a, like a massive hail mary, which is kind of what this is kind of what this whole plan was at this point. It's overtime, the score is tied, the clock is about to run out, so you're just running the football. And anyway, yes, yeah, so here I think is that the first time I've ever worked in a football analogy in one of our shows. I made one. Oh, that's right, you got the you got I one made in before a I hail did. Hail mary reference. Yeah. 
You did indeed. I don't even watch football. She pummels him with energy blasts, huge chunks of debris, and even manages to break his sword in half. She levitates him and begins to literally rip him apart. He calls upon Sanctuary 2 to fire upon her, even if it means killing many of his own troops. The ship fires upon the field of battle, knocking aside Wanda, several Avengers, and killing large swaths of Thanos' army. He's such a GD cheater. She just, she would have killed him right then and there. Okay, that's just totally cheating. Shooting on your own people. That's cheating. I object to that. The sorcerers begin putting up large overhead shields in an attempt to protect everyone. One of the blasts blows apart one of the last bulwarks between the remains of the compound and the nearby lake, or river, or whatever it is. Before water can flood the battlefield, Strange uses a spell to funnel the water away. T'Challa manages to retrieve the gauntlet, but Ebony Maw captures him by levitating a bunch of rocks around him. T'Challa hands the gauntlet off to Peter Parker, who engages instant kill mode on his suit to fight off Thanos' minions. Parker, however, is quickly overwhelmed and has to be rescued by Steve, who throws Mjolnir over towards Parker to fly him out of immediate danger. Pepper picks him up and tosses him over to Valkyrie, but gets knocked off by a blast from Sanctuary 2, which is still saturating the battlefield with fire. He takes cover, but is separated from the gauntlet. My favorite thing about Spider-Man is all of the chatting during battle, and I think this version of Peter Parker has done really well during the battle scenes, and especially all the little panicked noises and stopping to have whole conversations. I feel like that would be me. I've said before how I, I always got kind of irritated with, with Peter Parker, you know, he's like, you know, oh my God, Mr. Stark, help, I'm in trouble. You kind of get some of that here, but for some reason, maybe it's because it's just such a cool battle. I, I don't really care. Lots of stage actors and lots of actors in general will like make extra sound effects with their mouths like um one of the guys who is in Les Mis all like on Broadway he got a note one time from audio telling him like hey you really got to stop making the gunshot noises with your mouth because we can hear you when you do that like when they're doing the big battle against the government he's like pew 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 like it out loud <laughs> even though his mic is turned off and they're like you gotta stop I feel like that's Peter Parker. There's like a Peter Parker need in a lot of people to like make a bunch of extra noise <laughs> instead of just in your head it has to be out loud. So when Peter's like, oh god, oh no, ah, ee, like that would be me. One of the other uh, sort of film franchise was notorious for having that issue apparently, perhaps unsurprisingly, Star Wars. Whenever someone has a lightsaber on, apparently it becomes very, very hard for the, for the actors yeah, to not go and make the noises. I also sort of anecdotally heard that <laughs> the audio people, uh, when they were filming Rocky, would get really annoyed with Stallone because the scene when he's in the butcher shop or whatever, punching the, the, the cattle carcasses or whatever, you, the sound guys could just hear him do, doing with his mouth and you gotta stop man the fire from sanctuary 2 is relentless tossing the avengers around like rag dolls and then suddenly it stops as the avengers look up to see what's going on sanctuary 2 aims its weapons towards the sky and begins firing at something that has just entered the upper atmosphere. A fireball hurtles towards the ship and plows right through it, coming to a brief stop in midair. It's Carol Danvers. As the ship begins to come apart, Carol rams it again from underneath and emerges from the top. Sanctuary 2 begins blowing apart from the inside before crashing into the water. Thanos can only watch. <laughs>
That's my bad rendition of the Captain Marvel theme. So what if Captain Marvel is completely OP in these movies? That was awesome. And pardon my French, I love the, you know, oh shit look of despair on Thanos' face. Carol lit up his ride and his crib at the same time. Scott and Hope arrive in the van, but the quantum tunnel won't turn on. Scott heads into the back of the van to try to hotwire it. Carol lands and takes the gauntlet from Parker. There are a ton of bad guys between her and the van, but she gets an assist in the form of the number of women Avengers who help plow the way for her. And I figured you were going to have some things to say about this. I was gonna fuss about this, but I'm pretty sure everyone has already heard why most women aren't that impressed with this moment. Like, great, yeah, girl power, but two seconds doesn't make up for full movies of crummy female characters that hardly ever even speak to each other or exist outside of their male counterparts. Yeah, it's pandering. Yes, it looks cool, but it is pandering. It's like they're trying to throw a bone to the women fans or something like that. I don't want a bone. I'm a vegetarian. (laughs) She's here all week, folks. Please, try the brisket. Tip your servers generously. She does weddings and bar mitzvahs. Carol rockets towards the van, but before she can get there, Thanos hurls his sword at the van and destroys it. The shockwave knocks her down and sends the glove off in Tony's direction. Tony and Thanos scramble for the gauntlet, but Thanos knocks Tony away. Thor and Cap re-engage him, but are beaten back easily. I like Thor using Stormbreaker and the hammer at the same time to try to contain Thanos. And the lightning eyes, of course. Yes, I forgot you like the lightning eyes a lot. That is a cool move, though, with the two, with the two things. <laughs> Carol jumps in and starts wailing on Thanos, but he knocks her away and takes the gauntlet. He puts it on and is about to snap his fingers when Carol returns and grabs the fingers of the gauntlet, preventing him from snapping. She forces his hand and is about to power punch him in the head when Thanos cheats yet again by removing the power stone from the gauntlet and punching Carol with it, sending her flying backwards. Tony gets up and looks over at Strange. Strange raises a hand and curls all but his index finger signaling one out of 17 million possible outcomes this is the one the avengers can win thanos puts the power stone back on the gauntlet but then tony rushes him and grabs at the gauntlet they struggle for a moment before thanos knocks him back and proclaims i am inevitable he raises the gauntlet hand in triumph and snaps his fingers nothing happens he looks at the gauntlet the stones are gone he turns to tony who is kneeling on the ground with all six infinity stones merging with the right hand glove of his suit a look of horror crosses thanos's face as he realizes he is doomed energy begins pulsing through tony's body he musters enough strength to utter and i am iron man and then snaps his fingers there's a blinding flash of light and then one by one all of thanos's forces begin turning to dust his troops his ships everything finally thanos sits down on the battlefield in defeat before turning to dust himself the mcu began with tony stark in the movie release chronology at least the first major saga of the mcu of course now ends with him there's some symmetry for you tony now severely burned and weak staggers over to some debris and lowers himself to the ground propped up against it Rhodey is the first to get to him followed in rapid succession by peter parker and pepper all tearful friday confirms what everyone already knew tony's life functions are critical he's dying Pepper tells Tony, we're going to be okay. You can rest now. He holds her hand as it rests on the nanotech arc reactor over his heart. Moments later, it winks out. Tony Stark, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist, Avenger, and now, savior of the universe, dies the most heroic death possible.
Melodrama is a hallmark of the MCU, of course. Regardless of how you feel about that, if you don't feel at least a little something watching Tony Stark give up his life to save the universe, man, you are cold. Marvel is so good at getting the audience to care about these characters. Look how folks reacted when Phil Coulson died, when Heimdall or Loki died, Tony Stark dying. And that's like a whole nother level for most people. Honestly, the part that makes this whole scene sad for me is Peter Parker's response to it all. He just came back from being blipped for five years and now the guy he looks up to most is gone. Like that's rough. Also, I mean, wasn't Tony's first line to Steve in the beginning of this movie, I lost the kid. Just got him back only for you to go to the land of no return as well. Completely unrelated, not, <laughs> not even an, a bit important. How is Pepper's hair absolutely perfect after all that fighting? Like, yeah, I know she's wearing the helmet or whatever, but if you've ever had long hair and you've worn a hat or put it up, it's going to be trash no matter what you do. It wasn't that perfect. It's, it's got like, it had like a little bit of smuts in it. There, there were no <coughs> tangles. There were no knots in that hair. I can bet you. It's a Tony Stark helmet. He probably built it to, to do that. Need it's probably to build that for me. It's probably the first ever I always, so, so when you, next time you have to go save the world. Or even after a run, like my hair is always so knotted. Cause you wear it in a ponytail all the time, but it only gets it only gets knotted when you run. I mean, it gets knotted all the time, but I'm just thinking of specific instances because I'm not going to go save the world. Oh, okay. Later, a Quinjet deposits Clint Barton back at his farm. He reunites with his family after five years apart in New York. Peter Parker returns to school. He sees Ned in the hallway for the first time in five years. They do their secret handshake and then embrace. In San Francisco, fireworks go off overhead as Scott, Hope, and Cassie watch together. The Wakandan royal family, T'Challa, Shuri, and Queen Ramonda, gaze upon the glow of the capital city at night from a balcony at the palace. Inside the cabin, Pepper, Morgan, Happy Hogan, Steve Rogers, Rhodey, and Thor, possibly others, but we can't see them, are gathered to view Tony's final message to them, in which he acknowledges that things may not work out right. Or they might. Either way, I love you 3000. The Peter Parker-Ned reunion gets me every time. They don't say a word, and you know exactly what each of them is feeling. And the look on Ned's face, my god, it's like, it's Jacob Badalone's only scene in the entire movie. He doesn't say anything in the entire movie, and he just, he nails it. I, I love, love, love that scene. Was Ned snapped? It's inferred from stuff said in Far From Home that most of the gang from the Spider-Man movies blipped. They make reference to that one kid who was like a sixth grader at the snap, and now suddenly he's like a classmate of theirs and he's all big and stuff so i think i'm pretty sure like everybody else like peter obviously peter blipped i think ned blipped mj blipped the blonde girl who does the little tv thing in the school blipped flash blipped uh, it's just kind of inferred that they all did the memorial at the cabin continues as Pepper and Morgan lead those inside the house out to the lake. They place a wreath in the lake. On top of it rests Tony's first arc reactor, framed by the proof that Tony Stark has a heart inscription from way back in Iron Man. The camera pulls back and pans the entire gathering of those present to pay final respects to Tony. Pepper and Morgan, Happy and Rhodey, Steve, Peter Parker and Aunt May, Thor, Bruce, with his right arm in a heavy-duty sling now, Stephen Strange and Wong, Scott and Hope, along with Hank and Janet Van Dyne, the surviving Guardians of the Galaxy, Peter Quill, Drax, Nebula, Mantis, Rocket, and Groot, T'Challa, Okoye, and Shuri, Clint and his family, Wanda, Bucky, and Sam, Harley Keener from way back in Iron Man 3, Maria Hill and Secretary Thaddeus Ross, Carol Danvers, and, of course, sneaking into the back unnoticed, Nick Fury. 
I've got so much to say about this scene. Uh, first of all, that was no CGI trick. Every single one of those actors was actually in that scene, on location, on the same day, at the same time. It's unfortunate, though obviously understandable, that the only two notable persons not in the scene are OG Avengers, Tony and Natasha. Second, notice how everybody is arranged, more or less according to how close they were to Tony. Obviously his family and closest friends, you know, Pepper, Morgan, Rhodey, and Happy are at the very, very front, with Cap, Peter Parker, Thor, and Bruce right behind them. And riding the back are Carol, who probably barely knew Tony, and Ross, who you know pretty much hated Tony, but at least he was gracious enough to come and pay his respects. Third, notice the look on Strange's face when the camera pans by him. He doesn't blink, he doesn't move, he is stone cold. I mean, he knew five years earlier that this was the only way the good guys could win, and he was probably aware that it was an increasingly likely scenario once he unblipped and as the battle unfolded. It's almost like you can see him on his face bearing the weight of the responsibility for knowing that to begin with and have to keep it a secret. Although we all know he did what he had to do, you can tell that there's still some measure of guilt rightly or wrongly, that's probably going to be with him the rest of his life. And it's right there on that face in that scene. All I can think is how cool Carol looks in that sweet, sweet suit with the buttons and her excellent haircut. The excellent haircut I tried to get you to get specifically when we review this movie. I and bet you, you also out. that her hair you knots in that out. haircut anyway. I bet you that her hair also gets knotted. Maybe. I mean, any hair can knot. I mean, hey, but I it have, looks so cool. I have, I have shorter hair than that, and it knots every once in a while. But yeah, it does look cool. It, it looks very cool, which is why I said you should have gotten that hair. You Actually, you were the one who brought it up. You were like, yeah, I guess I could do it. I bet I could do that when we do Endgame. I could wear that. I could sport that yeah, haircut. Yeah, like two years ago, pre-pandemic, yeah. I probably said that. What do you mean pre-pandemic? No, you said that during one of our podcast huh. recordings, which was post, which was during the pandemic. You said you would try. You said you would consider doing that. I think it was when we reviewed Captain Marvel. He but then you never reminded me. I did remind you once, and you were like, "No, I'm too. I'm too." You didn't I'm remind me in the redemptive. last like three months. Because you had already told me like six months ago that you didn't want to do it. That is too short for me. It's cool, but it's too short. It would have looked really good, I think. But it's your head. Afterwards, Clint and Wanda share a brief moment by the lake, both hoping that Natasha and Vision, neither of whom are coming back, know that they won. On the porch, Morgan tells Happy that she wants cheeseburgers. He tells her that her dad loved cheeseburgers, a callback to Tony's first request when he got back from Afghanistan in Iron Man, and that he'll get her all the cheeseburgers she wants. In New Asgard, Thor prepares to go off with the Guardians in an attempt to start his life over and find his true self. As such, he abdicates the throne of New Asgard and appoints Valkyrie as their new king. Aboard the Benatar, Peter Quill is scouring computer records trying to find out what happened to 2014 Gamora, who apparently disappeared during the battle with Thanos. Thor then boards the ship and they engage in some passive-aggressive banter over who's in charge. Near the wreckage of the Avengers compound, the Avengers have constructed a new, small quantum tunnel. Steve Rogers is preparing to return the Infinity Stones, and Mjolnir, to the precise times and places from which they were first taken, thus avoiding the creation of alternate timelines. Bruce tells him that he tried to bring Natasha back when he had the gauntlet, but to no avail. Sam offers to accompany Steve on the journey, but Steve politely declines. Steve then approaches Bucky, who has a very serious look on his face. They do a role-reversed version of the don't do anything stupid till I get back quip from Captain America the first Avenger before hugging each other. Bucky whispers, I'm gonna miss you, buddy. Cap steps onto the quantum tunnel with the stones and Mjolnir, and Bruce sends him back. I do like that the hammer is just his now. 
Well, not for very long. He has to take it back to 2013, because, you know, their Thor kind of needs it. Five seconds later, Bruce attempts to recall Steve, but he cannot lock onto his timestamp for some reason. As Bruce and Sam argue over what happened, Bucky very casually begins to walk away. He doesn't get very far before he notices something and calls out to Sam. They both look and see that an old man has suddenly appeared on a bench looking at the lake. They approach him, but stop well short of him. Bucky, a knowing smile creeping onto his face, tells Sam to go ahead. Sam approaches the man. It's Steve now appearing to be some 80 years older than what he looked like before. He tells Sam that after he put the stones back, he decided to heed Tony's advice and go enjoy life for once. He tells Sam that it was very beautiful. Steve reaches over to a circular carrying case, pulls out his shield, and bequeaths it to Sam Wilson. Sam tries it on and tells Steve it feels like it belongs to someone else, but that he will do his best. Steve tells him that's why it's yours. As he shakes Sam's hand, Sam notices a wedding band on Steve's hand and asks Steve if he's going to tell him about her. Steve replies, no, I don't think I will. The camera then transitions to a house in the immediate post-World War II era where we see Steve Rogers and Peggy Carter dancing to It's Been a Long, Long Time. They kiss and the camera goes to black. I could go on and on about how much I want to see a Disney Plus miniseries about Steve returning the Infinity Stones before going off to spend his life with Peggy, or pondering whether or not his returning to Peggy caused a branch reality, and that that's why he got the two extra vials of Pym Particles in 1970. Maybe he squirreled one away so that he could jump from that branch reality to the prime reality to give the shield to Sam. But no, I don't want to belabor those musings because it feels like they would somehow draw too much attention away from such a masterful, beautiful ending to the Infinity Saga, with Cap finally doing something for himself by going to be with Peggy and finally getting that last dance with her. I totally get why he went back to be with Peggy, but I do also think it's pretty selfish. I mean, of course, Sam is more than capable of being Cap after Steve, and Bucky seems to understand and not be bothered by it at all, and it was technically only a few seconds for them, but they definitely could have used another helping hand in the few years after the snap, and instead, Steve is just like, nah, it's my turn. Like, I don't want to talk crap about Steve because I do love him, but it's almost like Tony made the ultimate sacrifice to save the universe and Steve turned more inward. It kind of feels a little bit out of character. The whole point, I think, was the dichotomy of the two. Tony is, you know, <laughs> a selfish prick for most of his life, so he has to learn to do something incredibly selfless in the end. Steve, on the other hand, has spent his entire life doing nothing but putting others first. And so now, after having helped Tony save the universe, he's finally getting to do something for himself. And being with Peggy is really the only thing he's ever wanted that badly. So, you know, I say fine. He, to me, he's more than earned it. Yeah, I think the reason it doesn't bother me as much as I think it would, because it does bother a lot of people. Like, I've seen a lot of talk that people think this is out of character. But I think the fact that whether or not Bucky and Steve talked about it the night before or that morning or whatever, Bucky knew that that was going to happen. And he was like, obviously, later we see that he's still dealing with some stuff in the Disney Plus series. But like, Bucky gets it. And he's like, yeah, okay. And so the fact that Bucky is not that bothered by it, makes me a little less bothered by it, but it still does feel a touch out of character. Okay, Tony has literally given everything to save the universe. Cap may not have given everything, but he came pretty darn close. He has given a lot. <laughs> he has given almost everything. I don't know. I just think Steve has earned it. You do all that, you save the universe, you save the world a zillion times over, you save the entire universe. You should be allowed to retire on your own terms, I think. 
About the end credits, I read an article written by the folks at Perception, the design lab that designed it and the title cards for both Infinity War and Endgame. And they talked about how the beam of light going across the screen as they roll the names of the actors is supposed to represent the light from a movie projector. And the clips that accompany the actors' names are filtered such that they look like they're being projected onto a screen. The combination of that technique, plus the heroic, iconic nature of the clips that they selected for each person, plus Alan Silvestri's absolute epic score make this my absolute favorite end credit sequence of any film I've ever seen. Uh, it's a chance for everyone involved in this epic final film of the Infinity Saga to take a bow. And then, of course, you get the dramatic cards for the OG Avengers and the with the sign-offs that Kevin Feige himself admits he stole from the end credits of Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country because he's a big Star Trek fan. We get to hear Alan Silvestri's Avengers theme one last time in all its glory as we salute the heroes who started it all. And then finally, at the very, very end of the credits, you can barely hear it, but if you listen closely, you'll hear a steady clang, 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 and it's the sound of Tony making the Mark I suit way back in Iron Man. Also, I read somewhere, according to Elizabeth Olsen, Marvel originally planned to have a post credit scene, a proper sort of traditional MCU post credit scene, at the end of Endgame, in which we see Wanda opening up a drawer in a morgue containing Vision's body, which would presumably uh, lead into WandaVision. But Kevin Feige pulled the plug on that one before it was even filmed, and um, I kind of think that was a good call you know what would have been a good post credit scene venom all right i get it <laughs> it was i only did it Jesus. twice only twice that's the rules gotta do it did the first venom come out in 2018 or 2019 2018 let's look what you don't you don't know this by venom. heart venom i'm disappointed in you 2018 and I'm then 2021 disappointed all in right, you. Really, all yeah. right. Bring the movie up enough GD times in this podcast at the very least you should know what year it came out. I don't know. All those years, 2018 to now, frankly 2016 to now, I'll just sort of blur together. Well, we got through the hard part. <laughs> that is our synopsis of the film and our commentary. And now we are finally, after two episodes, onto the part where we talk about characters and actors. Starting with, as always, and for one final time, we think, Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark slash Iron Man. So as far as we know, this was RDJ's MCU swan song. In that context, we obviously give him a ton of credit for kicking off the MCU and Iron Man and for providing us so many great performances of Tony Stark over the years. But I also think he deserves kudos for a good performance in this movie, Avengers Endgame specifically. We get to see the final stages of this amazing journey of his. He starts off the movies as an embittered hero who failed to save the day. And then he settles down and starts a family, which is quite a feat for Tony in and of itself, if you think about it. He plays it safe and doesn't want to do anything that could jeopardize that family, but he realizes that the only way he can save them is to take that one all-out crazy risk with the Avengers. And in doing so, he comes full circle by once again being that member of the team again. But also, as we talked about earlier, after a life of a lot of selfish and reckless decisions, he ends up doing the most selfless thing one could possibly do. And, you know, it costs him his life. And uh, RDJ does this all very believably. And I think, it's, uh, I think it's one of his best outings as Tony Stark. I do really like him in this movie. I like Tony all the time. I feel like it's hard to draw this distinction for people. I like Tony all the time. I think he's a very interesting character and I like RDJ. However, Tony's a dummy. <laughs> 
Tony's a dummy and he's wrong most of the time because, you know, he thinks he's right, but he's wrong. I guess a call back to Peter's like, you think you're right, but you're wrong and that makes you dangerous. Like that kind of thing. Tony thinks he's doing the right thing. Most of the time he's not. But like here, obviously he is. I think this is the only way it could have ended for him. Like not because RDJ would have wanted to be done at this point, but after- Which he, which he probably did. Yeah, that's which another he probably story. did. But there's no other way. From the very first moment, from the very first Avengers movie, when Cap says, you're not the type of guy to lay down across the wire and let the other guy walk over you. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is his chance to say, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. And to actually prove for all of the stuff that he's been saying, for everything he said about wanting to put a suit of armor around the world to protect the universe, this is finally his actual legit way to do that. To do everything that he said he was going to do. He did it, but, you know, it was going to cost him. Chris Evans as Steve Rogers slash Captain America. In Infinity War, Steve was this bitter, jaded, roguish, vigilante kind of guy. When Endgame starts, he's straight up depressed. It's a side of Steve we're certainly not used to seeing, and... Chris Evans plays it with a plum. When he's at the support group meeting and telling people they got to move on, the way he looks down and gets this serious, vacant look on his face for all of a few seconds before he puts on a faint smile and tells everybody that the world is in their hands. You can tell that Steve, he just hasn't really convinced himself of that and that he's struggling with real despair, possibly for the first time, if not, if maybe not the first time in his life, but for the first time in a long time, because he's usually such an optimistic person. Chris Evans plays those beats really well. But then, of course, Steve realizes he needs to be the Avenger he always has been. And the next thing we know, we're getting classic Cap, the soldier, the field marshal, the inspirational figure. And we know how well Chris Evans plays those parts. I do really like him in this movie because I think we're finally away from, I guess, like the really cheesy kind of inspirational stuff. Like he was pretty cheesy in the first Avengers movie. Yeah. And he was pretty cheesy in Age of Ultron. And I'm glad that he, you know, of course he had to go through terrible things to get here. But I'm glad that he's not jaded, but also not like a cartoon character, basically. Like a cartoon version of himself. He is like himself in all of the broken pieces. He is still Captain America. He's still inspirational, but he's also like, yo man, stuff's messed up. (laughs) The whole scene of Cap versus Cap was meant to address that because you know 20 2012 cap of course you know i can do this all day yeah i know i know you see how much steve has changed over the years since he's been in the modern era i mean you know we go from him proclaiming you know language in the beginning of age of ultron to you know you've got to be shitting me (laughs) in endgame and yeah he's come full circle too i think a big part of his arc is you know how do you deal with being a man out of time and we find him in various ways adjusting to life in the modern world. He has a hard time doing it, and there are lots of things about it he doesn't like. That was kind of the whole point of Winter Soldier and Civil War. It kept dealing with lies and obfuscation and politics and the spy business being so dirty and everything being kind of dirty, and it's just it just runs so, it's so antithetical to the very core of his being. I think that's also sort of a part of his decision to return back to Peggy. He always figured out he figured out how to adjust to this world, but he always knew he was never going to truly be a part of it. And this was an opportunity for him to go back to where he came from and where he in some ways belonged. I don't want to drag this out, but I do wonder how they explained it to people in that timeline. Like, oh, we found him. He's fine. Oh, it, well, yeah, I mean, another another unanswered question. Like I said, this is why I would love to see him come back 
and do one last thing like on Disney Plus, a miniseries, a Captain America and the Infinity Stones or something like that. And there were rumors going around that like he and Scarlett Johansson were working on some secret Marvel project. I don't know if they were meant to be working on it together or two separate projects or whatever, but there have been lots of rumors about him doing something like he's not done yet. Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner slash the Hulk. I liked Bruce in this. Like, I liked that he was a bit more relaxed. I mean, he was, like, kind of tense, but he was, like, way more relaxed even when they messed up with Scott, like, way back in the first part of the movie. Uh, once they got him back, he was like, time travel, we did it! I thought that was funny. I wish we would have gotten that without him being green. As Valkyrie said, I think I liked you either of the other ways. Pick one <laughs> of the ways. I don't care which one. Just pick one of them. I don't know. For some reason, I didn't... I just have very little to say about Mark Ruffalo or Bruce in this movie. I'm not one of those people who is against motion capture technology. I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh, there are too many visual effects in movies these days. That said, I do kind of miss seeing fully human Bruce Banner. I thought it was nice how they, how when the the Ancient One pushes him into the astral plane, you know, even though he's like Smart Hulk, the astral projection is pure human Bruce, which I thought was a good creative choice. It makes sense. If, you know, Bruce Banner and the Hulk are both at peace, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, then what else can you do with this character? That's always, in, in Marvel Comics or in the MCU, it just seems to me that's always going to be Bruce Banner's thing. That's always going to be the Hulk's thing. It's these two personalities that can't stand each other and are trying to get rid of each other, trying to coexist. You get your stories from that conflict. All of a sudden, that conflict is taken away. So it's kind of like he's just sort of there to service the rest of the story. I guess that's my sort of roundabout way of saying, yeah, I mean, Mark Ruffalo does a good job, but like, it's like, it's like the Hulk is almost kind of irrelevant now. And that just sounds really weird. The Hulk should never be irrelevant. Chris Hemsworth as Thor. After two great outings in Ragnarok and Infinity War, I thought Thor was kind of disappointing in this one. And I don't think it's Chris Hemsworth's fault. I kind of blame Marcus and McFeely and the Russo brothers for that. It's like, is Thor supposed to be playing this for laughs? Or are we supposed to empathize with him because he's going through PTSD? The way he's written and the way Hemsworth was directed, they wanted to have it both ways and in doing so he just kind of comes off as a big caricature in some ways maybe even more so than in love and thunder which i know you haven't seen yet because i think he comes off as just kind of a big dumb lunk in every scene that doesn't involve jane foster in that movie he just seems kind of stupid yeah i do kind of wish that we had seen more of infinity war thor in this one i think mostly it's the it's the fat thor thing that really bothers me because mm -hmm. there was a way to portray thor and his trauma and we did that in infinity war yeah so we didn't need to change it it worked well in that and it worked well in the beginning of endgame like mm -hmm. when he was dark and brooding and i he, went for the head he, yeah, yeah and he went for the head and he did all that stuff it's like we had that already we already had thor suffering with trauma we didn't need to like change the way he suffered and make it the butt of a joke granted you would have changed the dynamic of the getting the reality stone bit you would have had to rewrite that i think but you know you're so used to him being the sort of bombastic whatever kind of thing and just have him be like this grunting silent guy who's just pissed off all the time especially since your hulk is now sort of kind of out of the equation i think that would have been really interesting is just have this you know silent pissed off traumatized god in your company. Marcus and McFeely are so good. I like to think they could have found a way to have him go through a process in the course of the movie to get him out of that. But I guess they kind of, I guess, you know, they felt the, the best thing to do was, you know, 
to have Thor just be completely broken. And you still probably could have done that without having to resort to, you know, him turning into Lebowski Thor. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, we had that opportunity to show that he was broken without making it a joke and instead made it a joke. Mm -hmm. Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff slash the Black Widow. I was really frustrated when she was the one to die. And I think it was like until Tony died... Because I was like, did you really just kill off like the only OG female Avenger for the greater good or whatever? And I was less mad after Tony died because he's clearly like, I don't want to say like the heart and soul, but he's like obviously the catalyst for all of this. But given that we had the follow-up movie and given that we got to see what we see in the Hawkeye Disney Plus series, I'm less upset about it. And especially because we get to see more layers of her earlier in the movie that sort of open her up as a real person i love all of the scenes when they're um trying to figure out where to find the stones and she looks a lot more relaxed and she's got her little notebook out and it kind of feels like watching her being real and there were bits and pieces of it in the captain america the winter soldier there were bits and pieces of it in civil war but it felt like this was the time where we actually got to like meet her before we really meet her in the Black Widow movie. So I'm less, I was pretty upset about it when it happened, but then the past couple of years of content, it's like, all right. Well, you see her being a leader in this film, which is, you know, intriguing to me, even though she's been that in the comics. She's, She's been the leader of the Avengers in the comics at a couple of points in time. There are certain elements of her skill set that make her well-suited to that. It's also very different. Being a leader is, in many ways, very, very different from being a spy or being an assassin or being a secret agent, whatever you want to call it. And it was, yeah, it was neat to see her fulfill that role. She's, you know, assigning tasks and giving out orders and doing administrative stuff. And we, we assume she's doing it capably. You can see that. We also just sort of assume it. You see the vulnerability. You know, that was kind of the big effect, understandably, of the snap. You get to see all these heroes being broken in various ways to different extents. I remember talking about right the moment after the snap when you know, with Okoye looking around at everything and she's like she looks scared out of her mind. And I'm thinking, this is probably the one and only time you're ever going to see Okoye scared as hell. Uh, and it's sort of the same thing with, with Natasha when she find you know when Rhodey gets off the phone with her and tells her that you know Clint just slaughtered all these you know Mexican cartel dudes. I mean she's just heartbroken. She doesn't and she doesn't get to stay that way for very long because look you know. <laughs> Bing, you know, Steve shows up on her doorstep. And granted, he's, you know, he's there mostly to make a social call, but it's sort of like an interesting metaphor. It's like she doesn't have time to grieve because she's always busy doing this, busy doing that. I wonder if there's sort of a metaphor there for, you know, working women in the modern era, whether, you know, they're being moms and they're working and, you know, taking care of this and that. I wonder if there's some sort of a subtle, a subtle nod to that now that I think about it. But yeah, it's like she doesn't have time to grieve. We see her grieving for like all of, you know, three seconds before Steve walks in. Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton slash Hawkeye. I just really like Clint Barton. I feel like we were robbed in pretty much all of the other movies in terms of getting good development for him. I think this movie and Civil War did the best in terms of like growing him out of this mostly ignored second-rate Avenger member. Of course, we get a lot more in the Disney Plus series, and I'll probably just talk everyone's ear off whenever we review that, because I just absolutely love this character. I love a tired, annoyed dude who just wants to go do chores on his farm. (laughs) A little rough around the edges, but he's just doing his best, you know? But I also like that we got to explore his past, like his life before the Avengers, at least a little bit in this movie by seeing that even though he's a normal dude he is also capable of taking people out back and just destroying them you know stuff like that you don't ever totally get rid of like you said 
or like you're going to say i don't remember um stuff like that you don't ever totally get rid of time travel (laughs) stuff like that you don't ever totally get rid of and it just takes one wrong move like your family turning to dust to bring it all back and it shows that clint most definitely isn't the weakest link in the avengers it's like that meme that shows that whenever clint fights with the avengers they win and when he's either against them or absent from the fight they lose up to this point i think that this was both hawkeye's most interesting outing in the films and jeremy renner's best performance hands down you could make the argument that it's easier to play dark depressed conflicted tortured souls because you know that is certainly him in this movie but i don't think that's the case here we've seen jeremy renner's work in the other movies and it's fantastic like you said he's this kind of normal dude he's the everyman of the mcu and he's been pushed to and beyond his limits lost everything and now we're seeing him react to that he goes berserk and who's to say that someone else with his abilities wouldn't do that in the exact same situation it's not like we only see you know the ronin persona in this movie we get to see lots of the same old clint you know when he's running around during the final battle with the infinity gauntlet and he's like cap tell me what to do with this damn thing and the avenger with the bow and arrow is in possession of the most powerful thing in the universe and he doesn't know what to do with it and that's just so Clint. So I guess it's good to know that Hawkeye still exists and, you know, didn't get completely consumed by his Ronin alter ego. But, you know, I also could talk people's ear off about the Hawkeye series, too, because it was my favorite. It's my favorite so far of all the Marvel shows. Don Cheadle as Colonel James Rhodey Rhodes slash War Machine. I really like Don Cheadle. I don't remember really a ton of Rhodey in this movie. I know he was here, obviously. (laughs) He doesn't have a ton to do, but the thing is, he gets some of the best one-liners and stuff in the movie. He gets to rattle off the whole, you know, Star Trek, Time Cop, uh, the time time travel thing. The hot tub time machine thing. Why don't we just go back and find baby Thanos and, you know, you know. (laughs) Do you not know what runs through these veins? Cheese whiz. If you've seen the deleted scenes, you know, every take. He said a different thing was, was coursing through Thor's veins. I don't remember what all the other ones were, but I guess... Cheese Whiz was the one that they settled on. But he, he gets some really good one-liners in this movie. I thought Don Cheadle, I thought he was terrible in Iron Man 2 and 3, but he's just he's grown into the role really, really well. And I give him, in some respect, I give him the, the award for most, most improved performance over the course of the MCU films. They haven't said much about it yet, because I think it's still a couple of years off, but I cannot wait to see him headlining... Uh, his own MCU project when the Armor Wars show comes along on Disney Plus uh, at this point, probably sometime in Phase 6. We're probably looking like 2024, 2025. Paul Rudd as Scott Lang slash Ant-Man. Overall, I don't think this was Paul Rudd's best performance as Scott Lang, but, you know, as I referenced in our last episode, he does get one of my, arguably my favorite scene in the entire movie, the reunion with Cassie. That in and of itself was just some phenomenal acting, I thought. He's the fish out of water in this movie. You know, also taking into account his time in the quantum realm, he is the least, one of the least experienced, if, if not the least experienced hero in this group of people, and he's not as familiar with everything that's going on. He's been dealing with villains and so forth with abilities and, you know, superpowered suits and stuff like that, but he's never had to deal with a cosmic level threat like Thanos before, and he's in a lot of ways way over his head in some ways, literally, I suppose. I I like the comedic aspect that he brings 
much more than say you know the comedic aspect that they were trying to get with Thor because Paul Rudd is just too natural a comedic actor he does that really well he's kind of a fun presence to have amidst all the doom and gloom associated with this movie especially in that first act he lightens the mood at just the right time he provides the comic relief at just the right moments without it seeming forced Brie Larson as Carol Danvers slash Captain Marvel so Endgame came out like a month after Captain Marvel, which means, to be honest, I probably hadn't seen Captain Marvel yet. So seeing her in Endgame, she felt like a total Mary Sue. I think you you said OP earlier. Yeah. What does that mean? You don't know what OP means? No, I don't. I you mean, don't I can hang, guess you, what it means, you don't, but you I don't hang You don't hang out with the kids. As far as I know, it means, like, overpowered. Oh, okay. That's how, well, that's how my, my son, the video gamer, uses it. Because, like, I would so use... So it must be true. Like, I would use Mary Sue, which is, like, a perfect, untouchable female character. Right. Um, and I'm not entirely mad about it, because plenty of male characters are Larry Stews, Gary Stews, whatever you want to call it for when a man is perfect and untouchable. But when you're like that, when your character is perfect and strong and never falters, it's kind of boring. You know, of course, she struggles a bit with Thanos. Everyone does. But I actually find it less impressive when a character has no struggles, like no rough edges. It kind of feels like a cop-out for weak writing and weak character development. We see way more development in her standalone movie, and she's clearly not perfect there. But I just wasn't impressed seeing her in this one, and it turned me off from seeing her own movie for quite a while, I think. That's why you gotta see them when they come out. <laughs> you gotta see these movies as they come out. But she really doesn't acquit her character too well in this one, but she's not given a ton to do either, so that's kind of hard. It's pretty clear that they intended to focus on the OG Avengers in this one for the most part, so I'm not surprised. It, it does kind of feel, in some ways, like they kind of shoehorned her in there just because they've just been dying to get Captain Marvel into an MCU movie for a long time. I mean, like, I, like supposedly they were trying to find a way to force her into, you know, Age of Ultron back in the day, and Feige was just like, no, 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 it's too much, too much. I would have liked to see Carol interacting more with the other Avengers, but it didn't happen, and it looks like we're going to have to wait a while to see that, unless there's some surprise Avenger appearance in the Marvels next year. I think it's going to end up having to wait until Kang Dynasty or Secret Wars. I did like... At the beginning, when Thor calls Stormbreaker and she, like, doesn't flinch. Like, I thought that was really cool, and I felt like what I know now, like, that feels like it was pretty in character. Yes, it was. But the whole rest of it, the whole of Sanctuary 2 turning its attention on her, I don't need to describe all of the instances where I thought it was kind of just, like, a cop-out to be like, oh, well, she's a, she's powered by a stone. It's like, nearly everybody's powered by a stone at this point. Everyone's been involved. <laughs> That doesn't make her special. I just wasn't that impressed with the vast majority of this outing. Even though, like, it didn't bother me, really, but it was just like, all right. Karen Gillan as Nebula. You know, I kind of like that we see a more nuanced side of Nebula in this film. She's not all, you know, rage, rage, rage this time. And as I talked about earlier, maybe in our last episode, I think her experiences in Guardians 2 and Infinity War have allowed a greater exploration of her more, for lack of a better description, human side. And I think it's interesting to see that she's grieving just as much as everyone else is. Karen Gillan, she always gives a strong performance you know, in all of these movies. This one is no exception. And I'm really going to miss her once, uh, once all the Guardians Guardians sign off next year. I do like this one. I really, really like the two nebulas. Like, mm -hmm. you know, other people interact with previous people from their past or their previous selves, but to really like get in deep with your previous self when she's had so much change already, Cap is the same person. You know, like Cap can do this all day and he will do it all day. 
But 2014 Nebula and 2023 Nebula are not the same person. And to have to deal with yourself in the past, I think, was really cool. Bradley Cooper as Rocket. All right. Well, let me see. I like Rocket in both Infinity War and Endgame, not for the reasons that most people like Rocket. I think most fans, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but I think most fans like the, you know, ultra sarcastic Rocket who just goes around, you know, insulting you all the time. I like Rocket in these two movies. Again, again it's nuance. It's kind of the same reason I like uh, I like Nebula. You know, in Infinity War, we talked about Rocket kind of doing sort of the role reversal and playing Thor's therapist, <laughs> which is very, very against type for Rocket. We got the tough love scene on Asgard, which I know you like. That's very typical of Rocket, and I wouldn't expect no less of him. And, you know, that was a very, very good scene. But I also liked that quiet moment, you know, when at the beginning of the film when they bring Tony back to Earth and he and Nebula are just sitting there on the ramp of the Benatar holding hands and they don't say anything. It's their way of grieving for their fallen comrade. Even the this is the fight of our lives speech given by Steve. Rocket could say something kind of sarcastic, and he's like, he's, he's pretty good at this. <laughs> it's kind of nice to see Rocket is capable of taking it down a notch every once in a while and not be a jerk. Josh Brolin as Thanos, and I'm going to let Emily start with that so I know how much she loves Thanos. I mean, like, I don't think there's anything else to say. I think I've done all of my complaining in Infinity War. I think Josh Brolin's great. If we could talk about Josh Brolin. I haven't done that. But, like, I think he's great. I looked him up yesterday or the day before because I was like, I don't think I know what Josh Brolin looks like. And he like, he kind of looks like Thanos. You haven't seen, you haven't seen Deadpool 2 yet, have you? No. <laughs> he makes a really good cable in Deadpool 2. You get to see more of his actual face in that than, of course, than you do as Thanos. He kind of reminds me of Obadiah Stane, just because I think he's a big, gruff dude. Who's the other one? Who was the, wait. Is the guy who played Obadiah Stane the also the guy from Tron? Are they the same person? Yes, it's okay. uh, it's, it's yeah, it's just Jeff Goldblum, not Jeff Goldblum, not Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum, what am I? Jeff Bro. Bridges. Wow, Jeff we really Bridges. are on the edge right now. Jeff I'm actually Bridges. not that tired. Yeah, yeah, okay, Jeff, okay, Jeff Goldblum so is the grandma. Jeff me of Bridges. Bridges a little bit. Again, I don't really like the CGI. It's way better than the CGI we got in the first Avengers movie, but like not by much, from my opinion. It's funny because I thought he looked better in Endgame than he did in Infinity War. Did they make some? A titanic improvement in like six months between working on both of them because i actually thought he looked better in endgame than he did in infinity war but I also know. i mean thanos is a dummy who took one semester of econ and misunderstood the whole thing <laughs> that's all i've got to say emily is never letting that one go no this is the point at which we talk about other stuff i like to talk about music another fantastic score from Alan Silvestri. This one, I mean, I, it's hard. It's hard. I love the Infinity War score. I love the score for this one. The Infinity War score, appropriately, because the movie was like that, much more comic booky, very adventurous, and just kind of very, very action oriented. And this one is, you know, necessarily much more dramatic. And I, I like the fact that the music reflects the tone of each of the three kind of distinct parts of the movie. You know, that whole aftermath of Infinity War where, you know, the snap has happened and everyone's depressed and they're trying to see what everyone is up to after the fact. And so the, the music tends to be much more, more subtle, much more contemplative 
Uh, and then of course the time heist, it's heist music. You know, you get, uh, you know, the, he get his Avengers theme with, you know, sort of like the, the mission impossible bongo drums, <laughs> conga drums thrown in there, which I thought was really cool. And then of course we get the music for that final battle where we hear the Avengers theme played at full volume and it's, it's just glorious. And it's one, it's one of my favorite scores. It's one of my favorite scores of all time. And of course, yeah, to say nothing about the dramatic stuff during the memorial service, the end credits, uh, just this very triumphant, heroic, anthemic music honoring the end of an era in the MCU. That's a great score. It's funny. Um, I think we've talked about this before. There was an article or a video or something where somebody was making the claim that the Marvel doesn't have like an iconic song the way like Harry Potter does or Star Wars or I couldn't tell you what the Star Trek sound is, but I'm sure there's a Star <laughs> Trek sound. Oh my um, God. But like... Oh, I, well, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still stunned. I can hear the first beats of the Avengers theme, and it's like I know exactly what that is. And so I always thought that that was a silly comment to make because there's plenty of other things you could put on Marvel for like being crummy, like bad women development, using a lot of CGI instead of actual actors, or like being out on set. Like there's plenty of we- things you weak, could say. Weak third acts there's with massive like, overblown really set poor- pieces really poor villains like there's tons of things you could say but like i don't think the music is one of it the music is a problem in some of the in some of the films i think but in terms of having like an iconic sound it's like no i think people know what it sounds like yeah i mean that avengers theme i think will eventually will eventually become maybe not quite as iconic as star wars or star trek or you know indiana jones or even like harry potter but it will get to a state at one point where people recognize it there you have it we finished. <laughs> Took two episodes, but we did it. Our review of Avengers Endgame. So we're going to take a little breather, getting uh, these this two-part episode prepped for everybody. Of course, you're, you're hearing it now, so clearly we got it done. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going we're gonna to step away from the movies for just a little bit and uh, do another one of our top five countdowns. I think we're looking at top five saddest moments in the MCU in our next episode. So until then, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Stay safe, and we'll see you down the road. Take care. Have a good night. Bye-bye. I thought about fixing it for you. I really did. I thought about being a good friend and fixing it for you, but yeah, yeah, but the the, the other part you of had me, to be the other had part to of be, me just like you had to be it a took dick. Over. <laughs> you had you had to be a dick this time. Emily oh, Griswold. you know what else I could do right now? What else really could you do? What, what other what other dick move can you make? I could what? just ratchet it up. You ready? No, but you know you're going to tell me anyway. So what did I what did I f up? Venom. Inside the cabin. <laughs>